Broadcasting from the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia. All the way to the rhythm and blues of Beale Street in Memphis. To high atop the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. This is where politically correct perception meets common sense. This is the Joe Carey Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe once again. Look, I'm going to dive right in here. This is this is some pretty heavy stuff. It's a recent column by Peggy Noonan, and this is on the Wall Street Journal's website. Now, don't uh, don't make the same mistake I did. I I opened up the article and then uh, I inadvertently closed the page and went back to open it again. You only get a limited number of clicks. Just like the Simpsons taught you, you get one chance with Edna Krabappel. <laughs> you get one chance with the Wall Street Journal's website, and then uh, it's behind a paywall. But I was able to to get the text of her article, and I think it's a really timely one. Now, some people are going to think this is, oh, so provocative, or maybe it's even uh, hyperbolic, because it talks about, uh, well, the, the title is, What Were Robespierre's Pronouns? And this is a fantastic read on the true nature of language tyranny. Gender activists uh, revealed their uh, their politicization of the language in, in the, their emotionally abusive demands. And I, I know that, uh, you know, it's cloaked in the language. You know, we're just we're just asking people to be inclusive. We're just asking people to be nice. But it's the demands and it's the sociopathic nature of those demands that uh, that is really starting to show through. Remember, we've talked about this. You know, it used to be, hey, we just want to be left alone. Or we just want the right to marry. Or we just want, you know, the right to live our lives as, as we choose. But it's becoming something much different. It's actually becoming something uh, far more demanding and dangerous. I like how my friend Paul Gooch put it. Uh, he says, you know, what, what we're being told is, you are responsible for my happiness. And we're supposed to just shut up and bow. Okay, well, sorry then if I'm, you know, if I have to make you happy, what do I need to do? That's the whole idea. It's, it's weaponized guilt. And I can't speak for everybody, but I will speak for myself. I, I don't want to put up with that kind of abuse. And I think it is abusing us to sit there and make these demands. It's, it's not just you will use my preferred pronouns. I mean, come on. We were talking about yesterday the, the fact that you've got a guy in Canada who identifies as a woman and wants female uh, beauticians to wax his male genitalia in a procedure that's, that's primarily done on women, a bikini wax. We don't tolerate that kind of abuse in, in personal relationships. Why on earth would we tolerate it on a societal scale? But let's draw some parallels. And, and this historically, you know, there, there's a really good one we can look to, and that is the French Revolution. Peggy Noonan says, we often make historical parallels. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, as, as clever people say. And sometimes it hiccups, and this is what she would term a hiccup. She says, let's start with the moral and, and political catastrophe that was the French Revolution. In fact, she says it was more than a nationwide psychotic. It was more of a nationwide psychotic break than a revolt. A great nation at its own throat swept by a spirit not only of regicide, but also of suicide. For 10 years, they simply enjoyed killing each other. They could have done what England was doing, a long, nonviolent revolution, a gradual diminution of the power of king and court. An establishment of the rights of the people and their legislators that so that the regent ended up a lovely person on a stamp. But instead, France chose blood. 
Now, she says scholars like to make a distinction between the revolution and the, the terror that followed. But she says the terror was merely was merely 1789 with a higher body count. From the storming of the Bastille onward, it was apparent that violence wasn't just an unfortunate side effect. It was the revolution's source of collective energy. It was what made the revolution revolutionary. Now, this is from Simon Scamma's masterpiece, Citizens. His history of the revolution published in 1989, its 200th anniversary. And she says it's erudite, it's uh, elegant, it's heroically non-ideological. She points out a couple things, one of which kind of shocked me. Uh, John Adams, across the sea in America, quickly understood what was happening in France. He voiced alarm. But she says, in contrast, his old friend Thomas Jefferson egged on the revolution and lent it his moral prestige. Faced with the news of the guillotines, he reverted to abstractions. She says he was a genius with a true, if hidden, seam of malice and rarely overconcerned with the suffering of others. Not a fan of Jefferson, I take it. But she says the revolution had everything. It had a ruling class that was clumsy, decadent, inert, a pathetic king, a queen beyond her depth, costly wars, monstrous debt, an impervious and unreformable administrative state, a hungry populace. The task of the monarchy was to protect the poor, but the king had abdicated this protective role. Instead of ensuring grain supplies at reasonable prices, Mr. Scamma notes, the government committed itself to the new modern principle of free trade. British textiles had been led into France, robbing Norman and Flemish spinners and weavers of work. So they experienced it as some sort of conspiracy against the people. Now, she says one does see parallels, but they're not what I mean. What she's meaning here is that it was a revolution largely run by sociopaths. One, Robespierre, the messianic schoolmaster, saw it as an opportunity for the moral instruction of the nation. Everything would be politicized. No part of the citizen's life left untouched. As man was governed by an empire of images, in the words of a Jacobin intellectual, the new regime would provide new images to shape new thoughts. There would be pageants. There would be new names for things. They would change time itself. Case in point, first year of the new republic was no longer 1792. It was year one. To detach farmers from their superstitions, their Gregorian calendar, and its saints' days, they would rename the months. The first month would be in the fall, named for the harvest. There would be no more weeks, just three 10-day periods each month. So she says, here's our parallel. Here's our hiccup. And she says, I've thought of this all week because I've been thinking about the language and the behavioral directives that have been coming at us from the social and sexual justice warriors who are renaming things and attempting to control the language in America. She says there's the latest speech guide from the Academy, the Inclusive Communications Task Force at Colorado State University. Don't call people American, it directs. This erases other cultures. Don't say a person is mad or a lunatic. Call him surprising, wild, or sad. Eskimo, freshman, and illegal alien are out. You guys should be replaced by all or folks. Don't say male or female, say man, woman, or gender non-binary. And she says, in one way, it's the nonsense we've all grown used to, but it should be said that there's an aspect of self-infatuation, of arrogance, in telling people they must reorder the common language to suit your ideological preferences. There's something mad in thinking you should control the names of things, or perhaps I mean surprising, wild. 
She says, I see in it a spirit similar to that of the terror. There is the tone of, I am your moral teacher. Because you are incapable of sensitivity, I will help you, dumb farmer. I will start with the language you speak. And an odd thing is, they always insist they're doing this in the name of kindness and large-spiritedness. And yet, have you ever met them? They're not individually kind or large-spirited. They're more like messianic schoolmasters. Offices and schools are forced to grapple with the with all the new gender-neutral pronouns. And she says, here's a handy guide from a website purporting to help human resources departments in mid-sized businesses. It's headlined, gender-neutral pronouns, what they are and how to use them. He or she is replaced by Z, C, A, V, T, and E. Him, her is replaced by Zim, C, M, Ver, Ter, or M. You writing all this down? His or her is now replaced with Zer, Her, H-I-R, Ear, Viz, Tem, or Ear. Himself, Herself, Z-Self, Herself, Earself, Verself, Terself, M-Self. D- do you have the sense that you just woke up in cuckoo land as you hear this? But the bottom line is they're capturing and holding ground within our culture. And, and I'm, I'm trying not to be insensitive here because it's really easy to let frustration turn into anger. And, and that's not my goal here. I don't, I don't want us to, to end up just being angry. Ugh. You know, let's, let's not revert to, to caveman type reactions. But it's wrong when you meet a new coworker to ask his pronouns. We don't say preferred pronouns because that implies that someone's gender is a preference. Again, are you writing this down? You don't want this person wondering if you think he's transgender or non-binary. So instead, lead out by introducing yourself in a way that summons his pronouns. You ready for this? Hi, I'm Brian and my pronoun is he, him. It also counsels use the word they a lot because it's gender neutral. So I spoke to the marketing director and they said they'd get back to me. Sure, it's grammatically incorrect, but so what? Correct grammar and the intelligibility it allows is a small price to pay for inclusion and equality. Now, Peggy Noonan points out we're being asked to memorize all of this to change hundreds of years of grammar and usage to accommodate the needs or demands of a group that perceives itself as beleaguered. You know what? I'm perceiving myself as a bit beleaguered. And I'm not asking for much. I'm not making any demands. I guess the only thing I'm saying is, would you please leave me alone? And stop demanding that I do your bidding. I'm sorry, I've microaggressed. Let me go hang my head in shame for three minutes. We'll be back. This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Heights sitting in for Joe. Hey, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe today. Wasting no time getting into the thick of things with a commentary from Peggy Noonan that uh, was published on the Wall Street Journal. And it's it's really a good one about uh, what would Robespierre's pronouns be. And, and some may think that this is really an unfair thing that she's doing. Well, she's trying to draw parallels between the bloody French Revolution, the terror that was a part of it, where if you didn't agree, we were so righteous, we had every right to cut your head off with a guillotine. And today's modern social and sexual justice warriors who are demanding that everybody start using their 
I'm sorry, I can't use the word preferred pronouns. They're, they're pronouns because um, otherwise we're not being inclusive enough. And because they portray themselves as victim or they hide behind the shield of victimhood, none of us are supposed to say anything. We can't even, you know, sigh like Ugh, this again. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's so ridiculous. If you had suggested this even five years ago, I think most people would have said, you know, that's that's ridiculous. No, no way that this would catch on. And yet look at what's happening. How many schools, how many businesses, how many governmental bodies have now made it a part of their standard policies and procedures that uh, there shall be no discrimination here. And this doesn't even count all the uh, restroom, you know, uh, confusion and so forth. Bottom line is there are a lot of unreasonable demands being made, particularly in areas where nobody was trying to offend anyone. No one was mistreating anyone. But doggone it, don't you know, some people are a little more special than others, and they feel like it's it's their prerogative. As a victim, it is my job to, to put you in your place. Even if I'm not the one victimizing, you all have victimized me. And if you if it wasn't you directly, it was probably your ancestors. Funny how that works. I mean, you know, it's hard to lose a game when you're the one making up the rules as you go along. And that's how this feels. Now, Peggy Noonan points out there is a funny but painful spoof of this on YouTube. It's a seemingly friendly but dogmatic teacher of adult immigrants in English as a second language class, introducing them to the 63 new pronouns. And they're understandably flummoxed. Now, you can't see the confused looks on their faces, but I want you to hear what this sounds like because it's a really well-done piece of parody. And since we're still allowed at this point to engage in parody and some satire, we probably better take advantage of it. I swim. You swim. We swim. Very good, everyone. Now, Farhad, do you swim? I swim. Everyone, Farhad swims. So, he swims. Good. Now let's conjugate the verb to swim with the other pronouns. She, she swims. They swim. Zer swims. Z swims. Zai swim. What's wrong? I don't understand. That's okay. I don't understand. And that's all right, Louise. So I is the first person pronoun used when you're referring to yourself. I swim. Correct. Yes, I understand. I but I don't understand. What is that? Oh, they are all gender-neutral pronouns. What does that mean? Gender-neutral pronouns are what you use when you're referring to someone who doesn't want to be referred to by traditional masculine or feminine pronouns, like he or she. So not a boy, not a girl. That's right, Yuki. Is he gay? Uh, no. Well, not necessarily. My brother, he gay. Is he one of them? Do you know your brother's preferred pronouns? I don't know. My family not speak to him. Okay. Cultures are different. It's important when studying and practicing English that you stay sensitive to the pronouns of others. Not a boy, not a girl. Uh, that's a table, Farhat. It is a table. You see, the table didn't choose its gender. Objects can't do that. But people can. For example, what is Yuki? Girl? Well, maybe. We don't want to misgender Yuki. Yes, I'm a girl. You could be. I am. 
Yeah, but you could also be someone who was assigned female at birth, but now identifies as non-binary. So we would, in fact, use a gender-neutral pronoun for you. Like, Z. What is a sign? Is homework? Uh, no, no, no. A sign is how you look on the outside. But how you feel on the inside, that is how we identify. Identify, Svim. Really, Farhad? I am confused. You shouldn't be confused, Yuki. Sorry. It's really not that hard, you guys. There's only 63 pronouns. 63 pronouns? Yes. And it's important before speaking to anyone that you ask, what is your preferred gender pronoun? I have to ask everyone that? Yes, of course. Louise, what if you accidentally referred to a Z as a za? Wouldn't you be embarrassed? No. Of course you would. You should be embarrassed. And you know what else? It's offensive, right? Right. And you want to be a gender ally, right? Right. You're not learning English to be a bigot, are you? Okay. All right. Louise gets it. Okay. So who is still confused? Every hand goes up. <laughs> ah, so I think that's, that's there's a great use of humor to illustrate what's painfully obvious to the rest of us. Oh, the looks of confusion. By the way, I will link the video on the show notes page. So when, when this episode of the Joe Carey show goes up on uh, on the podcast website, uh, be sure to click on this. It's really worth checking out. All right. Let's open up the lines here. 801-331-8113. My friend Ray is standing by. Ray, welcome to the Joe Carey show. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, let me see. I know we're limited on time. Um, you know how much I appreciate your show and everything. Um, all the compliments I've always sincerely given you. I do have one little criticism, <laughs> and I don't know if it's to you or the, or the station owner, but this is talk radio, and sometimes you have so much wonderful material that doesn't allow for much talk. And um, But anyway, that's just uh, an observation of are, mine. Are you, critici- are you criticizing my interpretive dances, Ray? Because I, I really that that hits just way close to home. No, actually, um, no. Your your point is well taken, and we we do try to take the calls when they come. But understand, with a limited amount of time, um, we we don't always get all of the calls on the air. And there are some rules sure. of thumb that even come with taking calls. But please uh, continue on. Okay. Yes, I, I wish I'd give you two hours because you have so much material. Sometimes it's hard for my brain to simulate all of it, but um, <laughs> that you, all of your material is always taken the high road, and you know that's why I love your show. I mean, all the points you make are so valid, and and we need to think, and you make me think. That's why I love your show. Now, okay, the two subjects I want to hit really quickly is number one: I've been totally confused about this whole gender thing, and I finally got a little bit of. I hate to use the word compassion. Let, let me just say understanding. And that is, I did not know for the last 30 years, give or take, that the, the therapists and the psychologists and the doctors have been given puberty blockers to the youth of America. I, I didn't know this. And so these puberty blockers, you know, this really deform people mentally and physically for life. Now, are we talking a pharmaceutical-type medication that blocks puberty? Oh, yes. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of them, you know, fr- from um, giving, giving males woman hormones and giving women male hormones and, and you know, h- having males grow breasts and having women no longer grow breasts and on and on. These puberty blockers, these, these uh, sex, sex um, especially in the teenage years, they've been giving them to children. And, and so it's, we are now facing a society that, that the earth has never, ever known. There's a whole bunch of kids growing up now that are so confused with their gender because of they're playing God. And, and, and when the kids grow up, they can't change it. If well, they decide, oh. Your, your point oh, now, is well taken. Ray, I have a similar concern for, for the parents or legal guardians who would put kids on these uh, these hormones or worse let them undergo gender reassignment surgery and and basically permanently sterilize themselves when they're still children so yeah you you raise a good point it's we're in a very confusing place and i think that may be part of the goal here timely credible thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage this is the loving liberty radio network Welcome back to the Joe Carey Show here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe today, and I know this is a touchy subject, and sometimes I think it's intentionally touchy, like uh, we shouldn't even bring it up because it's risking offending somebody. But Peggy Noonan does such a beautiful job of drawing a parallel between the, the kind of unreasonable, if I think maybe the word psychotic, Demands that were raised by the Jacobins who carried out the French Revolution and the terror that followed. And the direction we seem to be heading today as far as our cultural revolution. Now, I don't know if you if you caught it in the last segment. I thought the uh, the spoof on YouTube of this friendly but dogmatic teacher of adults in an English as a second language class trying to teach them the 63 new pronouns. The looks of confusion on these students faces. It just it's hilarious. But it's, it's speaking to a truth here. And I, I love it when she asks the Central American guy, now, you're not uh, learning English so you can be a bigot, are you? But parody is fast becoming the only place where people are allowed to speak the truth. I mean, I, I marvel every single day at how the Babylon Bee and sometimes the Onion are able to, to use headlines that, that very truthfully sum up some weird quirk of what we are doing as a society or as a culture. But if you were to try to, if a legit, you know, straight news organization were to try to do that, oh my goodness, they'd be picketed into, you know, oblivion. It's getting so, this is the only way we can only indirectly talk about these kind of things. And even then, I think those days are, are numbered. If there's one thing that, uh, that the social justice type mindset can't handle, even worse than outright rejection, it's ridicule. And yet this is one of those places where, where ridicule might actually be the better approach. If we, if we can't laugh at ourselves, we've reached a really dark state of affairs. And as Peggy Noonan points out, we still have we have office arguments going on now about bathroom policy, which she says, I gather, are reaching some new peak. Now there can no longer be a men's room and a women's room. So we can have one expanded bathroom that everyone can use. No, no, no. Wait, we'll have all three. 
Ah, but there might be a stigma to using the third, so keep two bathrooms and just remove all designations. Ah, but the women don't want to put on their makeup with men coming in and out. The men don't want women walking in on them. That's a harassment suit waiting to happen. And I agree with her totally when she says it's all insane. All of it. But we're moving forward. We're renaming the months and the sexes, reordering the language. And this is the key. She says, you, you wonder how the people who push all this got so much power. And she's right. As I mentioned before, if, if you had five or ten years ago said, well, can you believe that uh, we're going to be having this kind of conflict and there's going to be this much friction based on these, these subjects or these ideas? People would have thought you were nuts, but here we are. And so when she asks, how did these people get so much power? She follows it up with the question, but then how did Robespierre get that much power? Look, I don't know what the answer is. And I'm certainly not encouraging, well, we got to get violent and we got to lash out in anger at anybody who, you know, is, is carrying this. I don't think bringing more anger into a situation where weaponized anger is being used against us is, is necessarily going to help. But I think we do have, at the, at the very least, a moral duty to stand our ground, or at least to stand for truth as we understand it. And that doesn't mean go find people to, you know, to point the finger at, and, and, and you don't need to look for new enemies. But we need at least thick enough skin to where we can take the criticism, we can take the name-calling, the, the snotty insults, and just let them roll off. It's hard to do. It takes some practice, and it's taken me many years to develop the thick, calloused skin that I now carry with me pretty much everywhere I go. But when someone tries to push my buttons, I also try to make it very clear to them, look, push away, but you're, you're, you're punching buttons that are connected to nothing. So sometimes just not giving them the reaction that they're searching for is the better way to approach this kind of thing. But if we don't draw the line, I mean, look, I guess th this is the question that I have. How far are we going to allow, our, allow ourselves to be pushed? Look at what the kids are being taught right now in some of the school districts around the country in the name of inclusive education. And I mean sex education. Is it essential that we teach them LGBT history? I'm not trying to scapegoat anybody, but I'm saying at some point you've got to draw the line. And if you wait until the moment where pass or play is being forced upon you, you've waited too long. Most people won't do anything except go, well, this sucks, but I guess I got to do it. If you're going to be somebody who can be counted on to stand firm for your truth, you, you've got to make your mind up ahead of time. And if you're not sure how to do that, then probably the best thing you could do is Figure out what exactly do you stand for? Is there something with which you would be able to, you'd be willing to part with polite society? You'd be willing to see your name dragged through the mud? You'd be willing to suffer economically or socially because you didn't go along with the crowd? I would hope that every one of us has some line in our character that exists where we can make that statement. Yep, this is the place where I just cannot go. 
Because if you don't have that line, I think it's it's terrifying to think the places that we could go. I think we may look back with fondness on the Jacobins and how how kind and actually how how mild mannered they were in comparison to what seems to be shaping among us. All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the Joe Carey Show. How did they get so much power? Sorry for calling in again, (laughs) but I hope you give me a little latitude here. Um, How did they get so much power? The caucus system is a way to change it, but I can't go into that. But as far as how did they get so much power, with a uh, Judeo-Christian moral value system of our government that our government's founded upon, this allows them to be an atheist or, or an agnostic or to believe in evolution, or the Big Bang, or, or, you know, we don't force religion on them through the laws. But the trouble is, they're destroying our our form of government, and our religious Judeo-Christian form of government allows them to be an atheist, or whatever they want, if they want to be homosexual, whatever they want, it allows it. But see, they're turning around the laws now, and they're forcing all of this upon us that they're destroying our freedom of conscience and it's it's going it's coming back on them and going to destroy their right to to be what they want dictatorship communism socialism you know the elite decides what is lawful and not lawful and so they they shouldn't fight judeo christian form of government because this allows them to be whatever they want but now that they're forcing their morals on us, now they're taking taking away everybody's liberties. I mean, does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying here? Well, Ray, I think uh, one of the things we have to do is, um, you, I think you summed it up well. The only thing I would add is we have to be very conscious of what we allow to become politicized and what we don't. And that means we have to draw clear lines where, look— government, you do not get to go here. And it may be, you know, I'm, okay, I'll speak as a parent. When it comes to teaching my children morality as it applies to human sexuality, government, that is off limits to you. Well, exactly. Brian, somebody has to teach them. And so, well, you know, you're not going to, oh, baloney, I'll teach my kids, but I'm not going to teach them the kind of stuff that you're going to teach them, which, as you mentioned, is exclusionary of any consideration of the Judeo-Christian worldview. We don't have to codify it in government for it to still have a very positive influence. But when, uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, you know, in, in the name of uh, fairness, in the name of, well, you know, we're just going to create this neutral uh, classroom. We've actually made secular humanist atheism America's de facto state church. And most people are oblivious exactly. to it. Exactly. They're pushing on us, you know, by the law. What we never pushed on them by the law, and they don't see what they're doing. Now, I'm going I'm I'm to push back just a little bit. There are some places where people have used the law, you know, as a punitive thing. Well, oh, we're going to show those gays, you know. I mean, that, look, in the colonies, the crime against nature, which is how they referred to sodomy, that was a capital offense. If somebody was caught engaging in this crime against nature, they would uh, they could very well be put to death. But this that was up to the to the states and that was up to their communities. And, and, you know, the Salem witch trials, you know, there's there there are reasons to be cautious of mingling church and state because sometimes it can get out of control. But the system that the founders gave us, the republic form of government, 
offered the greatest latitude for people to peacefully pursue their beliefs and not force them on others and to remain unmolested in their own beliefs. We've allowed that to become perverted. Ah, dang it. We are up against the clock here. Ray, thanks for your call. This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. Just a quick reminder, coming up at uh, 1 o'clock Mountain Time this afternoon, Ralph DeLugas will be hosting Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. Ralph is fast becoming one of my favorite hosts. And, and look, it's, it's in part because of his subject matter. He really does cover some super interesting topics that I don't know of being covered very many other places. I mean, not even Art Bell, I think, could, could cover these as well as Ralph does. But there is, uh, there is just a kindness... And a humility in Ralph. I mean, you know, to to meet the guy, you would think that uh, you would think that he's just a a humble, down to earth guy like the rest of us, which he really is. But he's also got a a metric ton of information in that brain of his. Uh, You you, if you if you were to just meet Ralph and just, you know, shake his hand, you would probably underestimate the incredible brain power that this guy uh, possesses. And I love that he has a mind that's curious and he loves to ask questions about things and and just explore. He's always asking the, the questions and not so much dictating. This is the answer and the only way it can be. He just uh, he makes you think about the world in a new and different way. Anyway, coming up at one o'clock here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, it is Ralph DeLugas. Truth is stranger than fiction. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here. We're going to move on to another subject. Uh, this is semi-related. It's a great article that I saw published today on intellectualtakeout.org, what Hollywood's golden age offers today's cultural meltdown. And what they're talking about here is, do you remember when movies actually were kind of a place where there was storytelling taking place as opposed to uh, some kind of a political passion play being uh, borne out before us? I guess the point here is that the more woke Hollywood has become, the more I find a lot of social justice ideology being either snuck in or just very overtly inserted into our entertainment. Now, the article starts with a quote from, and I had to look up how to say his name, Jean-Paul Sartre. (laughs) And I still butchered it, but uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, Sartre, says there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Well, there's an interesting start. And the author here, Onalee McGraw, says, We're in a fierce life-and-death cultural struggle over the meaning of human nature and reality in the cosmos. Our postmodern culture insists we are nothing but a clump of cells, but as autonomous selves, we can do whatever we want and define who we are. Into this morass comes a call from the film critic at the Washington Post making the case that we... There's always a we need films with really good sex scenes to retain an essential part of the classic cinematic grammar we're missing. Now, this article simply confirms the depth of our loss of community and cultural consensus on what is good, beautiful and true. 
our young people have never experienced being a part of a world with a shared moral order. With the current cultural meltdown, it's hard to see how any kind of consensus on who we are and where we're going as human beings can be retained. And yet, from my experience sharing classic films with young people for over two decades, I've discovered that the greatest of the films from Hollywood's golden age give them a vision of human nature they can readily recognize. We are made to see with the reasons of the heart which Blaise Pascal maintained are the source of love and reality. Now, four films illustrate the reality of this recognizable classical moral anthropology. Double Indemnity, made in 1944. Roman Holiday in 1953. It Happened One Night, produced in 1934. And Love with the Proper Stranger, from 1963. These cherished films are deeply loved by two groups of classic movie fans. Those who celebrate the onset of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and those who deeply regret it. Crossing the generations, there is a mysterious solidarity among people with deeply divergent political and religious sensibilities, a solidarity that demonstrates again the power of transcendentals like beauty, goodness, and truth to overcome the isms that permeate our culture today. The canon of five-star films from the Golden Age depict a recognizable moral order and a view of our common humanity that almost everyone can see in the themes, events, and character portrayals. And we included these four films and others in our theme-based classic film study guide, Men and Women in Love, The View from Classic Hollywood. So here are some specifics. Double Indemnity and the Motion Picture Code. A forgettable work of pulp, pulp fiction, pulp fiction rather, becomes the definitive film noir narrative of love on the dark side. Now, the motion picture production code that became operational in 1934 mandated an amazing collaboration that took place between the Production Code Administration, or PCA, and the studios. Challenging and difficult negotiations would historically center on films like Double Indemnity that was adapted from a controversial novel or a play. Consider the first principle of the motion picture production code. No picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Oh, wow. I guess that was a while back. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Now, clearly the code was rooted in a natural law understanding of human nature. The idea of a universally knowable account of good and evil and right and wrong. The narrative of contemporary film critics will often portray the code as merely arbitrary and puritanical, an imposition of censorship on the creative talent of the filmmakers. Films like Double Indemnity depict a classically realist view of human nature. While the naturalism of films like Citizen Kane appeal to many, it is the films that tell the whole truth about who we are as human beings that win the most votes. Father Daniel Lord, the author of The Code, understood the power of cinematic art to impact the human psyche. And he described what is happening as we are watching the movie as the presentation of human thought, emotion, and experience in terms of an appeal to the soul through the senses. Well, it took eight years for the filmmakers and the PCA to come to terms on this dark tale of the human condition. As Robert Osborne, late host of Turner Classic Movies, explains in his introduction to Double Indemnity, the story's author, James M. Kane, 
had made the character of Phyllis a habitual sociopathic murderess in his original story. At the end of the novel, Phyllis and Walter Neff, the insurance agent she has seduced into killing her husband, commit suicide by jumping off a boat. In the film, Walter Neff redeems himself and Phyllis is given a last-minute possibility of a change of heart. Now, the production code administration demanded that the character of Phyllis, played brilliantly by Barbara Stanwyck, be seen as having a minimal capacity for moral choice. The character of Walter ultimately makes crucial choices that redeem his character as an acting moral person. The character of Keyes, played by legendary tough guy Edward G. Robinson, is expanded into the voice of conscience in a morally disordered world. No wonder preview audiences rebelled against the discarded final scene depicting a heartbroken Keyes watching Walter go to the gas chamber. Is there anyone in the audience who's not in deep sympathy with Walter? Fred McMurray, known for the romantic comedy roles until this film, gives what is considered by both critics and fans as the finest performance of his career. Double Indemnity ranks as one of the finest films of all time. In our postmodern era, it can only be because the film ultimately tells the truth about the human condition. Now, the article goes on to talk about the mystery of loss and gain in real life and uses Roman Holiday as an example, saying Roman Holiday shows us the reality of how destiny and free will can be combined. An educator friend of mine piloted the classic film program with a group of young men in Houston, Texas, in an alternative school. These students had never seen a black and white classic film. They had no knowledge of screen legends Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. Here's what one young man wrote in his post-viewing evaluation. How do you spell phenomenal? This program has changed the way I feel about girls. I now have respect for them. I also have learned what it means to be a real man from watching Joe Bradley and how I should act in any situation. Now, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind and co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, has shared with us the fruits of his extensive neurological research on the feeling of elevation that arises in human beings. Haidt showed how a feeling of elevation causes persons to become more caring and compassionate towards others. While persons who resorted to, who reported a feeling of happiness tended to be more oriented to their own personal well-being. The social experience of watching and discussing Roman Holiday and other great films that tell the truth about who we are can give young people this mysterious but very real sense of elevation. Now, there's more to this article. I will post it in the show notes of the Joe Carey show that you'll see up on podcast on our website. I really recommend it. It's films that elevate the senses by showing the moral drama of human love that we need today. We need that a lot more than we need really good sex scenes. This has been the Joe Carey show. I'm Brian Hyde. Stand by for stranger than fiction with Ralph DeLugas on the way next. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.